On today's Roadman Cycling Podcast, I'm going to chat with Mr. Jay Vine. Let's cue that intro. The big question is this. How do we use cycling as a tool to improve our health, our happiness, and our longevity? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Anthony Walsh, and welcome to the Roadman Podcast. Roadman, welcome back to another Roadman Cycling Podcast. It's another interview day today on the Roadman Cycling Podcast, and I'm chatting with none other than Mr. Jay Vine from Alpes and Phoenix. If you're a regular listener to the show, you will know that Jay pops on and off the Roadman Cycling Podcast. I think this is about the fourth time we've had Jay on the show. Initially, we had the concept last year of sort of chronicling a life in the year of a Neo Pro, and that's why he was on with such frequency. But he's just become a great friend of the show, and that's why we bring him back over and over again. If you haven't heard Jay before, he was the Zwift Academy winner from last year when they were really doing a little bit of a beta version of the Zwift Academy to see if they would roll out. Jay won the Zwift Academy. He got a one-year deal with Alpes and Phoenix. He really impressed, including one of my favorite races of last season. I challenged you to come up with a more entertaining finish than the hilltop finish in the Tour of Turkey where Jay was just nudged out and got second it was absolutely brilliant since then he's nailed himself down uh, I'm not sure if it's a two or a three year deal with Alpes and Fenix he's moved from Girona to Andorra he's been super busy so I'm really excited to catch up with him before I do just a couple of housekeeping bits if you could all do me a favor if you could head on over to iTunes even if you don't consume your podcast there hit the podcast a five-star rating subscribe to it and leave me a little review the reason i'm asking i've got some super cool guests lined up and provisionally penciled in unfortunately their publicists their lawyers etc won't let them come on the show until we've hit at least a hundred five-star ratings and i've neglected to ask you for a long time like a lot of other podcasters do wasn't really sure what the point of it was but apparently there is a point so once I can get these 100 five-star ratings, I've got one absolutely incredible guest and a few more that you are really, really going to enjoy. So please do that. Also, a bunch of people DM me on Instagram asking about The Secret Podcast. The Secret Podcast is a closed podcast. It's a podcast I put out once a week as a thank you, a little chapeau, a tip to cap to those who support the podcast. So the most recent Secret Podcast topic was why sorry, how we structure a season in a fashion where we give a maximum chance of hitting our goals. Like how do we structure around work, family, social obligations? Because it's different to standard periodization. So I want to share with you some tips and tricks I've learned both as an athlete and coaching over the last 10 years. The podcast is fire. Got great feedback. Really enjoyed recording it. So if you want to get access to it, all you got to do is buy me the price of a pint of beer. Hopefully you're on the fence with buying it anyway. And you're like, okay, the secret podcast is finally the thing that will tip me over the edge if you're listening to this and you're getting a lot of value it's a beautiful way to thank me on the show it helps fund the show and now you get access to the secret podcast so to get it you head on over to patreon.com forward slash anthony underscore walsh patreon is spelled p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash anthony underscore walsh i've left it in the description down below as always other than that folks there's nothing else left to say only welcome to the Roadman Podcast, Mr. Jay Vine. Yeah, thanks. Glad to be back. I think this is the third time. 
Jay, you're a regular. As regular as I am at this stage. I should, I should start charging you a fee. I tell you, downloads are getting pretty good, Jay. I could be starting to charge you a fee. Promoting, promoting the, the Vine brand. How's life in Andorra? You just moved. Yeah, yeah. Andorra, I mean, it's certainly a lot colder than Girona. I was in Girona yesterday getting a, um, a heart test for the UCI and Oh boy, it was very, very chilly. I think it didn't get to above like five degrees until 12 o'clock. So, Ooh. yeah, La Cortinada, where I'm currently based, was zero all day. What's motivating the exodus from Girona to Andorra? Is it obviously tax consideration? Like, it's your third time on this podcast. You don't need to give us the party line. Is it totally tax or is there other motivators outside that? Another question would be, what's the motivator for staying in Girona? We were living in an apartment that was probably slightly too small for us. We owned a car that we couldn't park in a garage. So it was just on the street, rusting away. <laughs> um, so over here in Europe, most of you European viewers would know this, but we're not used to it in Australia. You have to pay a commission to the real estate agent every time you move house. In Australia, that commission is covered by the homeowner. Ah, okay. So we were looking at another thousand euros in commission to move house after one year. Well, if we're doing that, we might as well make the move straight to Andorra. There's no, there's nothing keeping us in Girona. We didn't branch out and have fifteen thousand friends in. In Girona. Is the riding not nicer in Girona? Like I've ridden in both places. It just seems to me there's a lot more variety in Girona than Andorra. I mean, absolutely. There's there's hills and there's flat. There's not just mountains. But if I can get my watts done, I can get my watts done. And I mean, more and more options open up the warmer and warmer it gets. So. No, I don't want to say you didn't integrate into the community, but you're not someone that's dependent really on training partners you know some guys can't get out the door unless they have you know a buddy to meet at the cafe at 10 o'clock that's never been really your vibe no no i i'm very much a loner i guess is the best way to say it <laughs> that 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 sort of community aspect Bree started to get into it right towards the end of um us living there but i went on a ride with Bree. so for context Bree is jay's wife i'm not sure if she told you the story so we were riding out of town and in Girona, for anyone who's listening that hasn't been there, there's kind of a, there's more than a set number of routes, but there are a bunch of popular routes that everybody rides. So I set out with a few friends to ride the Olot loop, which I think is like a four hour loop or so. And there was a girl riding like 10 bike lengths back from us. At this stage, we'd left town and it was obvious we're on the same loop. So I dropped back and I'm like, you know, you can come and ride because this is going to be an uncomfortable four hours just sitting 10 bike lengths back. She came up and it turned out to be your wife and she rode with us for the whole day. And what an amazing girl. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, I don't need to convince you of that. (laughs) It's it's actually our five year anniversary tomorrow. So congratulations. um, Thank you. She, she told me about that. I was on training camp, so I think we must have missed each other by like a day either side. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, of that. But yeah, I mean, the, the riding in Girona is incredible. But in saying that, you lose half your routes for two to three months of the year anyway because, I mean, the Hillary loop out to the west is basically all in sh- in shade for three months of the year. Guess cold. I rode that when I was over and it was properly cold in December. 
probably cold but also dangerous like there was a climb that i did that was that had ice on it you know so you come around a corner and the rear wheel starts slipping out and you're like whoa i'm glad i didn't come down this road otherwise (laughs) i would have been over the arm coat and down the other side how fucking annoying is this everybody asking you about your tss and your power scores you seem to be the rider in the world that people want to know this most about yeah, I had it a few times, and it it just it got got to me where I <laughs> I was like, nah, this is enough. Everyone's different. Like you can't compare them, and you certainly shouldn't be comparing yourself against professionals. Like the way we operate, no no amateurs are doing forty hours in ten days, and then having a rest day, and then doing thirty hours, and then having another rest day. It's just not what amateurs do so it's not comparable but i guess because you came from true swift academy from the amateurs people almost feel like they're you know this weird thing people do with their power where they underestimate their waist they're like oh i'm actually probably three or four kilograms lighter than i am and then they overestimate their threshold by 20 or 30 watts and they're like oh on a good day maybe i could do six watts per kilogram you're like a you couldn't B, when they see you coming from the amateur background, they sort of somehow feel like there's a shared journey or there's a chance that it could be them. I don't know if it's just me that feels that people think that about the Zwift Academy, but it's not true. Like your times, uh, you're a proper bona fide world tour rider now. When we chatted at the start, you were kind of dipping your toe in it and going, fuck, I hope I can knock a year out of this. But you're a world tour rider now. People are going to get sick. They're going to get injured trying to compare and match your training rides. I stole one of your Strava files. Uh, it's a funny story, actually. So I was looking for a route. I, I have a good idea of routes around Girona, but a buddy of mine was flying that evening and I needed like a nice two to two hour 30 route. And I was like, fuck, I'm going to go online. I'll flick a few locals. So I flicked onto your Strava and you had one said, it was something like cruisy two and a half hour ride or something like that. You had a title. So I was like to my buddy, here's a two and a half hour ride. Do you want to do it? Fuck, he almost missed his flight. It was a three hour chain tight ride. <laughs> it was like 270 watts average. He was in the wheel, missed his train, had a panic getting into Barcelona. <laughs> then I was like, you cannot take rides from world tour riders and apply them to your own circumstances because the speed you go up hills versus the speed we go up hills is so so different yeah exactly i mean i'm not running shit tires either i'm running the same tires i race on the courses the vittoria courses so they're very fast tires i'm practicing my positions i'm not riding around all upright and laid back i'm trying to be as low and as aerodynamic (laughs) as possible so it's like averaging 35 k's an hour, you know. So, you know, I can easily bust out 70 k's in two hours or just over. <laughs> what did you make as Swift Academy this year? I actually was a bit jealous, you know, at, at the start, rocking up to Mallorca, this hotel that what, the, the rooms were like 700 euro a night. Like it was very flashy hotel. But then after literally hearing the cat, the finalists, well, actually, no. The morning after I got there, I, me and Vanderpoel had to do this walk in and surprise them because apparently <laughs> they weren't going to be aware that other riders would be on their camp with them. But anyway, walk in and surprise them. And we, we did the first take of we all walked in and Cassia Numadoma is there as well. We then had to do another take. So it was like, surprise. Oh, wait, by the way, be surprised again. Walk back out, walk back in, surprise, take two. 
at that moment, I was like, I'm so thankful I did not have to go through this. It was just all online and I just did my writing, popped off the bike, answered a few questions to my videographer and then went home. I had a buddy of yours, the Swift Academy finalist, Sam Hills, on the podcast a few weeks ago. I'm not sure if you heard him. He felt that it was a reality TV show with a little bit of cycling rather than it being a cycling academy with a little bit of media. He felt the balance was like, it was like, okay, here's your bike, walk in and look surprised. And then it's like, okay, take two. You didn't quite look surprised enough. Can we get that one again where you come back in and look a little more surprised? So I think he was a little bit, not annoyed, but he's like, you know, recovery and performance wasn't prioritized like it should have been for a serious thing. What he was really pissed about was he felt it was a bait and switch on the world tour contract that it was they were led to believe there was a world tour contract he said he weren't explicitly told but because you had gotten a world tour contract and they said there was a professional contract up for grabs he said it felt like that was the kind of legitimate expectation that if you won it you would get a world tour contract i can't remember what age sam said he was i think he's 26 or 27 but he was basically saying the prize at the end for Alex Bogda, who won it, was a three-year development contract. So he's like, at 26, even if I had a wonder, you know, what am I going to do with a three-year development contract? You know, moving from a continental team to another continental team for three years. He's like, yeah. I got to make the move to World Tour now or it doesn't happen because he's a teacher. Yeah. And then turning 29 and trying to put yourself in the marketplace. Never Impossible. Professional for it. It's almost a dead end. You know? yeah, it's impossible. Um, as far as I'm aware now, it's fully confirmed. It's a it's only a two-year development contract. From what he's told me, Alperson offered him upright the same deal that I got, one year on the pro team or two years on the development team. And he took the two years on the development team. It's probably not a bad show for him, to be fair, because he's so young. Yes, being 19, I think he may have turned 20. So he ends up turning 21 and he's had two years on the development team. You know, it has done some professional races, done a bunch of one point or point one races, could get a signing out of that. So it makes sense. I think it's a better, it's definitely a better route for him. Are you happy sitting on your new contract, feeling smug? Yeah, I'm more than happy. Like I, I wouldn't have taken the, the development contract. I think... The only way I could have made this work, like with the whole, all the expenses of moving over here as well, being older, like I'm not reliant on my parents for, for cash. Breed worked to, to get us to the point where we could be in a position to go, right, we can sell the car, we're going to sell our furniture, we've got some cash there, and now we're going to just start making it rain in Girona to <laughs> try and uh, get a house to live in. But you guys, it's such a, you know, chatting to Bree. I got a glimpse of it chatting to you on the podcast, but four hours riding around chatting to Bree that day. Uh, you're probably not unique. There's probably other couples in the world tour like this, but it's it's such a cool story that you guys were all in as a couple and kind of looked at it like, okay, this is an investment in our future. If this works, it, this is a great opportunity if we grab it by both hands. But Bree totally dived into becoming a part of this team with you, looking after meal prep, looking after recovery, you know, your logistics stuff. I'll have to start coordinating podcast episodes through Bree next. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like literally, it's it's extremely annoying. The other pet peeve that Bree has, I saw him starting to get it, is the question of, so what do you do? And then when Bree says, 
I support Jay. It's like, yeah, but when you're not supporting him, what do you do? <laughs> oh, does Jay just like disappear sometimes? No. When I'm not supporting Jay, I'm still with Jay because we're sort of hanging out and otherwise I'm riding my bike. I'm, I'm in Europe. Why wouldn't I ride my bike in Europe, you know, and enjoy myself? <laughs> there seems to be this outside pressure that people can't, support their better halves and then just have a sort of hobby on the side like someone who goes to work and then on the side i don't know goes and drinks at a pub or plays pool in nightclubs or some, something on the side what a random hobby that is playing pool in nightclubs <laughs> I don't know. Oh, is it darts darts is a good one yeah <laughs> Uh, no, but it's. I say this to clients all the time. It's there's one thing like you talk about training forty hours a week. That doesn't leave a lot of bandwidth for doing anything else. And even if you reverse that to you know our most ambitious clients who are riding fifteen to twenty hours a week and balancing a full time job, how do you do bike maintenance? How do you look after your recovery protocols? How do you get your washing done? There's an infrastructure behind every cyclist, whether it's elite, amateur, or professional, that enables that success. And it's the it's the invisible piece that maybe it's a you know masculine thing that we didn't hear about in previous generations. You know, you never heard Eddie Merckx coming on and tanking the tireless work of his wife in the background. That's generational. I feel like it's more appreciated now. And Alex Dowsett on the podcast couple of weeks ago and it's the exact same thing with alex i even you know coordinated time slots for the podcast through his wife she manages media relations she managed all the logistics for his error record looks after sponsor requests it's a team it's a two-man team but it's a it's it, there's another step being in a foreign country where language is not your native language everything takes four 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 extra steps which takes four amounts four four times the amount of time out of my day i mean it took three so we we parked incorrectly. So we had a car towage, right? This is the car that's sitting outside in Girona rusting away. Well, it didn't rust away fast enough, so they came and towed it. And because we don't speak the language, it took Bree literally three hours to walking around Girona trying to find out where it had been towed to, who we had to pay the money to. Then we got a ticket in the mail because we had to pay a towing fee and then we had to pay a ticket fee. And then working out on the ticket which reference number they required because there was seven reference numbers on this damn piece of paper, all in Spanish. It would have taken so much effort out of my day of just trying to relax, recover, and get ready for my next session. This was in the lead up to my first training camp. So I was trying to put new load back into my legs. And it was just, it was just a lot of stuff that is not posted on Instagram, has to be done, you know? I was in Paris a few years ago for the final of the Tour de France, just a spectator. Went over to watch Tour de France follow around a couple of stages. We went out with my girlfriend in Paris, went to a nightclub, parked the moped, obviously incorrectly, and went, had some drinks, went to the nightclub, went back to the Airbnb, came out the next morning. I'm like, where did I park that moped? Can't find the moped anywhere. It's gone. And exact same thing. I have to start ringing around. I wrote for a French team for a year, so I have a small bit of French, but it like I can tell people to fucking ride through, hold the wheel of a man up the road. I can't say anything useful. So yeah, again, like that whole day and the energy that goes into that, you know, administrative stuff, it's it's just shocking. Let's dive into I want to talk about equipment because I'm real jealous. Uh do you ride the new Dura Ace 12 speed? 
Yep, that's on the team or on the race bikes. You know, with the logistics of pandemic, the virus of unknown name and origin, we've only got uh, twelve speed on the race bikes at the moment. So. I'm still riding the 11 speed. Oh, you poor, you poor thing. There's some cunt listening to this now and he has a fucking nine speed Tiagra. <laughs> He's like, you freak, Jay. Yes, yes. Yeah, I've got the current 11 speed or the old 11 speed on the training bike, but the, the 12 speed's really nice. They've, they've made the shifts faster and I'm pretty sure they now say that you can run a 36.53. Nice. In previous, all previous generations, it's been, we don't recommend it. Yeah, a sloppy shift. I can I can tell you for a fact, the Volta, we rode 36. Uh, did you ride the 12-speed for the Volta? No, not, no, we didn't do that for the Volta. I think I think might have had one or two. Yeah, and I think Roglic was rocking it around yeah. then as well, but it was kind of blacked out. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's got to be sort of a... A bigger rider they've got some serious supply chain issues going on at the moment it's there's a business model if you can get your hands on group sets and sell them at the moment they're like gold dust yeah i mean it's, it's the group sets cars like every disposable income rich industry has just exploded and the haves have bought up as much as they can and the have nots fallen further and further behind at the moment <laughs> I haven't chatted to you since you rode the Vuelta. What was it like to get through your first Grand Tour? And the question I've got asked so much on my uh, Instagram DMs. <clears throat> I probably get more DMs about you than you do about you. I, I get Instagram DMs about like anyone that's been on the podcast. Like I'm like, I don't know how he's fucking doing. Go ask him how he's doing. It's like, I'm not his PA. The crash in the Vuelta. So I suppose two questions. How was the Vuelta getting through it? And talk us through that crash. I mean, the first week was pretty... Now, it's the Grand Tour. The first week was relatively easy. Went into stage seven feeling super fresh and rode super fresh, which meant that I used up way too much energy trying to get in a move. You know, I think 11th place or 12th place or something was the best I could do for that day. But I felt amazing during the middle week. I mean, there was a couple of attacks that I did and then stage 14, it was all going all like, like love it when a plan comes together a team style you know <laughs> me in the car we like i i peed off the bike first time in a bike race i was hitting all my goals like new experiences it was great it was just a freak freak accident of me not being totally in sync with feeding from a car i was handing back a water bottle and there was a slight left in the road there was a slight bump in the road don't know how it happened, but the bike sort of started to go lopsided. And the moment it, the moment the balance is lost against the car, you cannot bring it back. God. Like it is, I, I, I have, I have lost control of this bike. It is going down. I hit the ground, and I was very lucky not to go under the car. What was the damage? Well, at first, I couldn't feel my leg. Like there was a lot of cursing of an expletive is were um, were said, but. After the shock of it, I tried to stand up and I, I just I just couldn't get up on that leg. They were worried about my arm having a massive hole in the sh- in the the elbow needing stitches. But my my first thought was try and stand up and hop on a bike. They had a spare one there for me, and I think it took me about two minutes to to actually be able to. Okay, no, the leg, the kneecap is not shattered. The 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 bones all still good. I can stand on it. Yes. Okay. Let's like how far I 
turned to the race direct, the sports director, how far is the break? No more than two minutes. And he's like, and Bardet's attacking them. So I was like, oh, perfect, sweet. So I jumped on the bike and the medical car started to put some bandages on me. It, it didn't show in the race footage, but literally two Ks after I crashed, it started going into, you know, 10% pinches with the technical descents. So I had to like flick the, the medical car. They didn't like it, but I had to flick them off because I was going to crash again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that would have been a, so yeah, rider crashes into teen car, then crashes into the medical car. Are you going to get to do a Grand Tour this season? Do you know your schedule yet? I think they're pretty keen on me doing the Volta again. I mean, I'm not keen on doing the Giro. The weather is a bit ordinary in my uh, in my eyes. And I think the last two or last 10 days are way too hard. But the Giro's too hard for everyone except like two riders. And then you have the crazy long transfers. It just looks miserable. Yeah. I mean, and this, it, they are, the, the climbs just also don't really suit me. They're, you know, super steep cold climbs and i perform really well in the heat the tour obviously is just out of the question at the moment i don't have the i don't have the paycheck they're not going to waste a tour spot on me i guess a bunch of how does it work for tour selection i'm assuming a lot of it's form based but i'd say there's obviously a quite a bit of it's political within the team as well i mean matthew has to go well is he how much riding is he going to be doing the team revolves i mean primarily around matthew like they're going to need to try and get a yellow jersey with Matthew again. So he has to go. I think even regardless of his form, to be honest, you've got to also balance, well, Millier is one of the fastest guys in the world and Jasper could win the green jersey. So So you've got to bring the lead-out squad. You've got to bring the lead-out squad. And I don't fit into that squad at the moment. So... Yeah, it's interesting chatting to Dowsett about his changing role within the peloton is interesting. He's like, you can't be, for him, you know, he was a time trialist and people seen him, so, seen him as a time trialist. But he's like, you can't be a time trialist who doesn't win time trials. Like, he's like, I can't beat Filippo Ghana. He's like, he's doing 490 watts in the middle of the worlds for 20 minutes. He's like, I can't do that. He's like, I can do it for five minutes. He's like, I can't do it for 20. So he's like, if people see me as a time trialist who's going to come third, fourth, fifth, sixth in a time trial, I'm not going to have a contract. I'm not going to have a job. So he's redefining himself and saying, actually, what I do is I can time trial a little bit, but I'm the sprint lead out guy. You know, between me and Rick Zabel, we're going to lead out Nizolo next season. That's my job. I'm part of this squad. Is there a sense for you that unless you can develop to be the top, I suppose for you, you're so early and you don't know where the ceiling is. Maybe you are one of the best climbers in the world, you know, next season, the season after. But is there a sense that if you don't establish yourself as one of the really top climbers, that you need to find that role and say, okay, I'm a climbing domestic. I'm a, you know, whatever that role is. I would like to hope that I have plenty more years in myself to sort of develop and work out what I'm doing. But I mean, there, there are roles outside of being the winner on the team. I mean, look at Rafael Micah. He's redeveloped himself on UAE as Pogacar's right-hand man. Unlike sprinters that sort of if they lose their sprint and they can't win bike races, there's no path for them. Like, it, And it's, it's a very special sprinter that can become a lead-out man. There's lots of different positions for, for myself to sort of slot into, but... I'm hoping I can do some winning this year, hopefully. It's almost a branding issue as well, isn't it? Chatting to Dowsett on it, where it's how people view him. He's like, I've always been 
part of the lead out train, but it's now just actually telling people this is what I do. So when it comes time to think about putting together a sprint squad, he's first and foremost. It's like almost where marketing and cycling meet. It's interesting the changing role in cycling. Well, but in football, for example, you've got stats on this, like who's got the most assists and all that, like even cricket for crying out loud. If the wicket is taken by catch, it's got caught and they've also got the bowler, like, sorry, who, who caught it? But the bowler got the wicket, you know? They even give props to people who are good wicket keepers and stuff like that. Cycling, it's the person on the page who won the bike race, nothing else matters. That's that's really hard for teams unless they are have their eyeballs on everything to see that. And then all the different levels of cycling to try and pick out a continental rider that's that's a really good lead out guy must be borderline impossible. What I'm hearing is we need to money ball cycling. Yeah. <laughs> it needs yeah. to be more stats driven, but it would be cool to see a stat of how many kilometers you rode on the front positioning guys last season and contrast that with you know david formolo how many rider kilometers did he do positioning riders into climbs it doesn't seem like these stats are that difficult to get but there's just not a mind to get them at the moment even doing like a number of you know you know like morkov morkov's stat of the amount of races he's ridden with a sprinter and has has had the team member win the bike race there's got to be a high percentage of races last year that he rode where they won. I don't know how Sam Bennett makes that move from Quick Step to Bora without bringing Morkov with him. It seems oh, it insane. Seems like he's he's yeah he's left something slightly behind there. Yeah, a hundred percent. Like it's not coincidence that Cavendish slots into that with Morkov and he's the fastest man in the world. And Jakobsen is I, he's fast. Like he hasn't he hasn't lost any of his speed. So. Next year's Tour de France could be very, very special. But I, th- I almost feel like the Giro could be more exciting because there's more there's more sprint stages at the Giro. Yeah, and Nizzolo's going to be going there with Israel as well, which is going to be interesting. Italian and all that flair. I think it's going to be an interesting matchup. There's so many interesting matchups coming into next season. But what are you most looking forward to next year? I've been, I've been so excited ever since November 1 when I started riding again, the start of racing. And I'm off to Besage next tuesday so my mother is in town she's flown over from australia so nice i got a surprise call up uh, to to this first race and my first second race third race third race in in france and they're going to come actually watch me my mother's never seen me race a uci race that's amazing australia. so she gets to do that my schedule will be a lot more than just four bike races they didn't race you a lot last year no, no, they didn't. But they've they're they're very happy with what they saw at the Volta. They are very excited to back me in winning winning races. Tour de Turkey still up there as one of the most exciting moments of the season. Oh, hands down. Like Tour of Turkey, you know, even though stage 14, third place is a better result, the stage where I attacked with Bade and Chicone. <laughs> was this the one you got 10th or 11th on the stage or was this a different one no this was a, this was a different one um it was a it was the it was the second stage that caught nielsen won oh okay um, yeah yeah what a beast i got caught with like 500 meters to go after attacking on the final climb and it was just, it was pretty surreal to be at the front of a bunch and it was the first time i'd attacked from the lead group as well so Roglic was there 
all the guys were there. Obviously, they saw me go up the road and were like, oh, we'll let that go. Just being in that position, I was, it, was, it was pretty surreal. So, and, yeah, those two moments in my life. Can, can you get a feeling for how big is that gap between, you know, you and Pogacar Roglic? You know, like if me and you go riding, you know, I don't need to see the stats. I'm going to be like, there's a big fucking gap between me and Jay. Do you get that feeling when you're with the guys going, there's a big gap here or does it feel like bridgeable for you? During, because I only rode with Roderick at the Volta, but earlier on the Volta, the gap may not have been very big there, right? So there's probably a little bit of a gap, but not very big. But third week, that stage 20 where the race just went to pot and Lopez ended up losing his third place on GC. Stupid shit. I was completely maxed, and they were just going away, driving up up the final three climbs. And we were we were 120 Ks in with 65 Ks to go, and I thought I was doing well. I was in the top 40, and I got shelled. It, it was great. Like the level at the back end of a Grand Tour, I think I need a couple more thousand Ks in the leg. Yeah, I used to ride with Michael Barry, who was on Postal, HTC, and Sky, and he was saying to me, that's really the difference. You know, I'd be out riding with him in, you know, day one of his block, and he'd be like, okay, you can match me on a 15-minute climb on day one in an hour into the ride. Let's fast forward and do this six-hour rides for three weeks in a row, and then try and match me on the fifth hour. And it's like, fuck, that's where the experience tells. That's where having like 100,000 kilometers raced in your legs tells. How much is the altitude? How much are you looking into it in Andorra? And how much are you tailoring training protocols around the altitude or using it as a tool? We're at medium altitude. So the team's, my, my coach is really being cautious with not blowing me up basically um, in my first week of, of, of altitude living. So it's, it's sort of in the, in the worst possible altitude region where it's fatiguing and takes out of your recovery but it's not giving you the scientific be- benchmark of you have to go to 18 over 1800 meters to get a benefit that's where all the studies are done but i i found with myself personally that i suffer with acute altitude sickness so going above 2000 meters i'm sort of prepared for it and my subjective feeling and probably therefore my performance is woeful. We're looking at the calendar and we're going, right, so that goes above 1,500 metres, that's 2,000 metres, that's, you know, 2,100 metres, and we've got climbs here that go all the way up to 2,400. We'll be doing simulator rides up to that altitude to make sure I, I my body is prepared to do that, which is not your typical sleep high, train low sort of model. Have you been using pulse oximeter for measuring saturation levels? Yeah, we used that in altitude last year. After 10 days of my 18-day block, it was back at 100%. And similarly here, it's it's taken seven, seven days to get back to, to 99. I mean, even at 1,300 meters. I mean, Girona, as you know, it's like 200 meters. I've gone 1,100 meters up. Yeah, look, if you can nail it, it's just going to be another weapon in your armory this year going into it. Plus, you're building on last year's experience, Jay. I think it's going to be a good year. I'm getting down to the bookmakers for a few cheeky little bets on you this year. Cheers, thank you. Uh, Hope hope to impress. Make sure you text me the inside track as to what stages you're going for, though. (laughs) Jay Vine, thanks for joining us. No worries. Cheers, mate.
Cheers, buddy.